But how good was it to worship together again this morning? That was awesome. Thank you, worship team. And uh, I know that there are some of you at home watching online this morning, and we want to welcome you uh, as well. We're sorry you couldn't be with us today, but just know we're united in spirit with all of you at home, and uh, we're glad you can tune in and join us uh, for our sermon this morning. But uh, it's so good to be back together again as a church family, and uh, great to see everyone, great to worship together. Uh, you know, we've had some great online worship over the last few weeks, and let's give our worship team and tech team a big round of applause. They worked really hard. I've been uh, absolutely amazed and just incredibly proud at the efforts of our staff, and uh, you know, especially Sunday mornings, our tech team and our worship team, they have just done tremendous work to be able to provide for us uh, Sunday morning worship <clears throat> in a very difficult season. So uh, we're grateful for them and grateful for the great resources we have here at Lakes Free. Some of you have uh, asked me this morning, uh, you actually uh, notice we have some new offering boxes outside uh, in the Youth Center Commons area. You might notice them as you leave this morning. Uh, some beautiful wooden boxes. Those were made by our friend Daryl Mosby here at church. And uh, we're still encouraging people to worship the Lord through our giving. That's one of our callings as God's people. And so if you'd like to bring your offerings on Sunday mornings, we do have those drop boxes available. Uh, otherwise, we'd encourage you to continue to uh, worship through giving uh, online or through your bank's bill pay system. And uh, we certainly uh, are very grateful for our church's support, uh, especially over these recent months where things have been so hard for so many people uh, you guys have been so faithful in providing for our church, and we're just very thankful for that. So I uh, just know from the bottom of my heart, on behalf of our church family, uh, thank you. And uh, let's continue to uh, bless the Lord and honor Him uh, in all areas, including through our, our giving and our resources. But uh, a couple things uh, this morning as we begin. I uh, just wanted to uh, mention again, uh, next Sunday morning, we're going to have the same format here, uh, a service at 8.30 and 10.30. And uh, again, the 8.30 service will be a masks required service. And, you know, again, I want to thank all of you. I know some of you, that's an important issue. Uh, you need the mask for your own personal health. And, and others of us are just still, you know, concerned about our personal safety in this uh, season we're in. And so we just, you know, we want to honor you and uh, wear masks as we can here in our worship service. So thank you for uh, doing so this morning. I know it's a little different worshiping with a mask on. And, uh, you know, now we really can't tell who's out there singing and who's not. But uh, I can still see your eyes. So I know if you're falling asleep on me as I preach this morning. But uh, anyway, so we're going to have a service next Sunday at 8.30. Again, masks required. And then our 10.30 service next Sunday will be masks recommended uh, but optional. So uh, one of those two choices available. And you can register for next Sunday's worship as soon as 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. So as of 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, you can go to our lakesfree.org website and secure your spot to join us for worship. Uh, we had a great response. We had over 100 people register for our 8.30 service this morning. And uh, our 10.30 service, we, had, uh, we hit our capacity, which is 170 here uh, in our gym and in our youth center. So, man, that's a great turnout for our church family, our first Sunday back to gathered worship. And uh, we're really thankful for that. And we're going to have some great times uh, praising the Lord together this summer. God's going to be good and faithful. And we're going to do our best to continue to provide a clean and safe environment. But uh, it's just going to be a thrill to be back together worshiping the Lord as a church family. 
I'm going to open in a quick word of prayer right now, and then we're going to jump in and continue on in our series, our new summer series in the life of Joseph. And you might be wondering, that's why I've got my podium of many colors up here this morning in honor of Joseph. So let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being gathered again as your family. We thank you for your faithfulness to us over this past season of difficulty And uh, we're just so thankful, God, for uh, how you've provided and taken care of our church and now how you've led us back to this place today where we can worship you together. Lord, our, uh, our hearts this morning are with those in our church family who couldn't be with us, and we just uh, we thank you for each of them. We, we pray that they too feel loved and valued and special and a part of our worship with us this morning. And uh, Lord, we also lift up our nation to you today, uh, a nation still reeling with concerns from COVID-19 and obviously the strife we see in our society today. Uh, Lord, we we commit all of that to you, and we ask for your grace and mercy to be with us, Lord. We ask for your peace to reign in the hearts of the people of our nation. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word once again, to the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph, we ask for your blessing over the message this morning. We ask that you would open our hearts, humble us, Lord, as we come to your word, and uh, give us a receptive spirit to uh, hear what you have to say to us this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, friends, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, this morning we're going to be continuing our brand new series, uh, Looking at the Life of Joseph. Uh, As we begin this morning, I wanted to just share a quick illustration with you. Uh, I brought one of my fishing poles with me this morning. And, uh, you know, it was fun this this, uh, spring. My son, Caleb, Caleb and I like to go out and do some fishing together. And uh, this spring, we were out in our garage uh, getting our bait and looking at our gear and getting all of our rods and reels tuned up, ready to go. And and Caleb noticed that most of my rods uh, have this particular look to them. These These are called bait caster rods. Uh, So you've got two different kind of reels. Uh, There are spinning reels, uh, which have the bail that you flip open and close. And then you have bait casters, uh, which uh, are are a different kind of mechanism. Well, Caleb was looking at my bait casters thinking, Dad, you know, I want to fish with a bait caster. And I said, you know, Caleb, they're, they're really tricky. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's things you got to learn. You can't just pick it up and, and go out and fish. And, uh, and Caleb said, well, Dad, I, I want to try. And so we started working on the baitcaster together, and it's been really fun. Caleb's actually become really good uh, using the baitcaster now in the last uh, couple months that we've been working on it and practicing. But, you know, when it comes to fishing with a baitcaster, you can't just pick up the reel and go out on the dock or on the boat and, and make your cast like you would with, you know, your old Zebco, uh, you know, spinner reel. You, uh, you have to be careful, and there's a process that you have to follow. Uh, for example, on a baitcaster, there's a series of breaks that you have to tune in order to make sure that your reel doesn't just go spinning wildly and you end up with what is called a a backlash or a bird's nest where the line just gets all jumbled together and and it becomes useless. And so what you got to do is you first tune the brake on the left side of your reel. This is your centrifugal brake. And uh, it's a series of magnetic brakes that uh, actually help slow the reel as it spins when you toss to cast. And then you got another brake over on the side here that you need to tune, and that actually controls the rate of the lure's fall when it hits the water. And so what you do is you, you push your button here, and you want, your lure is going to fall, 
but you want to make sure it falls at a nice, slow, steady pace. So you just adjust that brake until you get it to fall at a nice, slow rate. And uh, once you have that brake tuned to the appropriate spot, then you're ready to go ahead and make your cast. And hopefully, uh, you're not going to end up with a big bird's nest or backlash. Now, in theory, it works great. Now, it always doesn't always work that well in person, uh, in real life. But, you know, after a while, you get the hang of it. But it's important when you're fishing with a bait caster to follow the right steps. There's a process that you have to stick to. There's a plan. There's an order. You can't just go and, and make your cast. And, and I share this illustration with us this morning because when it comes to the story of Joseph... There's also a process, an order that we need to follow in order for us to understand what's going on in the story. In order for the story to make sense, we have to take it in the right steps, in the right stages. And so today, as we come to chapter 38 in our story, what we're going to find is God actually tuning the brakes, if you will, on the story of Joseph, uh, slowing us down, getting us to take a step back to look at the story in the right order so that it makes more sense and we understand what God is doing in Joseph's story, and so that we can get a greater appreciation of it for its application to our lives. And so we're going to take a step back today as we turn to Genesis chapter 38. Now, just to remind you, if you had a chance to uh, see our sermon last week, or if you missed it, uh, chapter 37 opens up with the story of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs. You had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's fourth son was a young man named Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 37, the story of Jacob and Joseph opens up with this dysfunctional family, uh, a father who has favored his son Joseph over all the others. The other 11 sons are, are growing in resentment and hatred towards their brother. Uh, they, they, uh, they end up going through an experience where Joseph is given an, a couple of dreams by God where Joseph tells his brothers that they're ultimately going to bow down to him and, 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 and honor him as their ruler. And this obviously only infuriates his brothers all the more. And so, uh, so Joseph's brothers conspire. They hatch this plot to get rid of Joseph. At first, they think they're going to kill him. Then they throw him in a pit. Then they decide to sell him to slave traders uh, into slavery in Egypt. And that's where chapter 37 ends. Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt. And now we come to Genesis chapter 38. And when you turn to Genesis chapter 38, sometimes people look at chapter 38 and, and they scratch their heads and, and, and say, you know, what is this chapter doing here? Uh, it, it's a confusing chapter when you first come across it. Number one, because it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with Joseph. Jo Joseph's not mentioned anywhere in chapter 38. In fact, chapter 38 jumps from Joseph's story to one of his brothers, Judah, and his family. And, and it's about this completely different group of people. And then on top of that, as we read, it's a story filled with all kinds of sinful deeds and illicit sexual encounters. But as we're going to discover this morning, God put this story right where he did for a reason. God had a, had a plan and a purpose for putting the story here to help us better understand what was going on in Joseph's story. Now this morning we're going to read Genesis chapter 38. 
And uh, today we're going to be using a little bit different translation. Uh, we're going to be using the NJESV. Uh, if you haven't heard of that translation, it's the new Jason English Standard Version. Uh, I've created my own uh, paraphrase. It's very close to the original, but I've changed up a few uh, key words here. Uh, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you'll notice there's some very descriptive language uh, in the biblical story here. And so for the sake of uh, avoiding some awkward conversations, potentially parents with some of your uh, kids, uh, we've just uh, paraphrased some of the language for you. But uh, I'm going to read Genesis 38, and then we're going to come back and we're going to answer the question, why did God put this story here? Why did God give us the story of Judah and his family? So let's read Genesis 38 together. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Judah married her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, marry Tamar and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he had relations with his brother's wife, he made sure she would not get pregnant so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For Judah feared that Shelah would die just like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In other words, Judah was thinking Tamar has some kind of curse on her. All the sons he marries off to this woman end up dying. Verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me have relations with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may have relations with me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and had relations with her. And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of this place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. So you see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant, she said. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took, a to- took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now it's an interesting story. It's a, it's a story filled with some inc- crazy experiences and some very immoral uh, situations. And we can come to stories like this in God's Word and we can ask the question, you know, why on earth would God put a story like this in the Bible, yet alone put this story right at the beginning of Joseph's story? I mean, we just started getting into Joseph's story. Now we've got this weird story of this dysfunctional family filled with sexual immorality and abuse and betrayal and rebellion and what on earth is going on here well friends god put this story right where he did for a reason in fact i want to share four reasons with you this morning why god gave us the story of judah and his family number one number one god gave us the story of judah's family to shine a spotlight on our human depravity. God wanted us to see very clearly just how depraved the human heart truly is. You know, what does a picture of humanity apart from God look like? What, what, what does it look like when men and women choose to turn their backs on God's? Well, friends, we see it right here. Right here in Genesis 38, we're provided with a vivid picture of human depravity run amok. What what do we see in Judah's family? We see rebellion. We see illicit sex acts. We we see abuse. We we see uh, deception. We see injustice. I I mean, this is a family that has fallen into a a downward spiral of depravity. This is a picture of a a Romans 1 type of world. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, where Paul describes how how we have turned away from God. We've turned away from God and we've, we've turned to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. We, we've become filled with all manner of right, unrighteousness, Paul says, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We've become gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we know God's righteous decrees about those who practice such things, that they deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans 6.23. We not only continue to do these things, but we give approval to those who practice them. You see, in Judah's story here in Genesis 38, we see the depths of depravity that humanity can fall into 
when we turn aside from God. You know, you think about what's going on in our world today. You think about the, the strife that we see every day on the news. We, we see racism. We see murder. We see rioting. We see looting. We, we see the destruction of, of pro- public property, vandalism. We, we see all kinds of ex- examples of injustice. Friends, what's the cause of all these things? What's the heart of all of these issues? The, these aren't the issues. These are symptoms of the issue. The, the real issue is our sin, our rebellion against God. Paul says when we turn aside from God, this leads to all of this depravity. That's what's at the heart of everything we see. Friends, think about this. For the last uh, two, three generations in the United States, we've been teaching our young people in school that they're nothing more than animals and, and that God is, is irrelevant and, and church is unnecessary. And then we turn on the news at night. And after teaching entire generations that they're nothing but animals, we wonder why we turn on the news and we see people living like animals. See, friends, when we rebel against God, the natural outworking of this is the depravity that we see in our world today. Genesis 38 is a vivid reminder to us, friends, that we have a problem. We have a sin issue and that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior to step in and and rescue us. The, the, the second reason that God gave us this story of Judah and his family is to warn us about going with the crowd instead of following the king. You know, friends, when we turn our backs on God and, and follow the crowd instead of the king, it leads to nowhere good. Our world today says things like, if it feels good, do it. Our, our culture says, listen to your heart. Our society tells us, you know, pursue your best life now. But you know what? God says something very different to us. In Proverbs 14, verse 12, God says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. You know, friends, you're never going to find life and peace and joy and fulfillment straying from the king. Going with the crowd instead of the king leads to nothing good. We see this all over in Judah's story. I mean, where did things go wrong for Judah? Well, think about this, friends. Judah chose, number one, the wrong culture. Look how verse 1 starts in our passage. What did Judah do? Judah went away from his brothers. He left the family of God. He turned aside to a certain Adulamite, a, a false religion, a false culture a pagan culture he turned aside he left the people of god he he embraced the wrong culture and then he gets involved in a a marriage with a pagan wife the wrong coupling friends there's a reason why in second corinthians 6 14 god says do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever i'll tell you something marriage is hard enough when you're united spiritually with your spouse but when you don't share a biblical worldview, when you don't have the common faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, you're setting yourself up for a life of heartache and hardship. So Judah embraced the wrong culture. He embraced the wrong coupling. And then we see Judah getting involved in the wrong company, soliciting prostitutes. Now, he didn't realize this prostitute was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. 
She was deceiving him in order to bear a son, which was her right, that Judah had denied her. Her, her other, his sons had denied her. But, but notice just how easily Judah goes into this transaction. I mean, Judah enters into this transaction with this prostitute like it was no big deal. It's almost as if this wasn't his first rodeo. You know what I'm saying? This guy had been totally uh, accommodated and, and enculturated by the paganism around him in the land of Canaan. You know, there's a real danger, friends, when we turn our back on the king and we follow the crowd. You'll never experience God's blessing in, in that kind of situation. You'll never experience his blessing living outside of our will, his will for our lives. You might remember this earlier this year, we did a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon, remember Ecclesiastes? King Solomon tried everything the world had to offer. He tried it all, riches, money, sex, pleasure. He pursued it all. And what was Solomon's conclusion at the very end of Ecclesiastes? His final words in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Solomon says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Solomon said, look it, I tried it all. At the end of the day, you want to know where true peace and fulfillment and joy comes? It comes by fearing God and keeping his commandments. So God gave us the story of Judah to warn us about going with the crowd instead of the king. Thirdly, God gave us the story of Judah to reveal the need for sending Joseph to Egypt. Friends, why did God send Joseph to Egypt? Remember, his brother sold him into slavery, but, but God had his hand in this whole event orchestrating Joseph's going to Egypt. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, God is going to orchestrate a famine leading his brothers, the other Israelites, the sons of Jacob, to Egypt, looking for protection, looking for food, looking for safety. And there they're going to find their brother Joseph, who is ultimately going to become their savior, their provider, their preserver. God was orchestrating all these events. But, but why did God send Joseph to Egypt? And why do we see the story of Judah in chapter 38? Because God wanted us to realize why he needed to send the Israelites down to Egypt. You see, if, if God had allowed the Israelites to remain in Canaan during this time, in this pagan, wicked land, what we see taking place in Judah's life would have very likely replicated itself in the lives of the other ten sons of Jacob and their children, and entire generations of Israelites could have been lost to the immorality present there in the land of Canaan, this wicked pagan land filled with sexual immorality, filled with false gods, filled with child sacrifice and all sorts of wickedness. See, friends, God was preparing the Israelites to send them away from this wicked land into Egypt where they would be preserved and protected as a culture. And yes, they would go and serve as slaves in Egypt. But the Egyptians allowed the Israelites to remain united as a cohesive culture, a people group. And it was there that God formed and shepherded his people, preparing them for 400 years for the exodus when he would send them back to the promised land. Remember last week in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, we talked about how when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent his son into the world. See, all of this in Genesis 38 is part of that fullness of time. God was preparing the way to send his people to Egypt to protect and preserve them from the wickedness of the land of Canaan and then ultimately bring them back where he could continue his unfolding plan of salvation for the world through the children of Israel. God makes no mistakes, friends. The fourth reason why God gave us the story of Judah and his family was to highlight his amazing grace. You know, from our human standpoint, we look at the story of Judah and Ur and Onan and Tamar, and we see this family that is just spiraling down into depravity and wickedness. I mean, illicit sex acts and and abuse. I mean, think about how this this woman, Tamar, was abused. Her, Her husband dies. Judah gives her his second son, Onan. Onan has relations with her, but makes sure she doesn't get pregnant. And the Hebrew there conveys the idea that Onan was doing this regularly. In other words, he enjoyed it, but he also didn't want to give her a son and lose the inheritance that he would get. This woman was being abused regularly. And then she has to, to fall into her own deception and, and hide as a, masquerade as a prostitute in order to get pregnant by her father-in-law. I mean, this is just a dysfunctional, wicked, sinful family all around. I mean, there are no heroes in this story. And we look at this and say, how on earth is God ever going to do anything good in this story? But you know something, friends? God used this story to show us his amazing grace. You know, in the person of Judah, for example, we see God's amazing grace displayed in Judah's life. Judah, as we're going to discover as we go through our series in the life of Joseph, Judah is actually going to become the line from which the kings of Israel will come. Judah is going to receive from his father Jacob the blessing of the royal line. He's going to be the, the ancestor of the kings of Israel. The, the line from which ultimately the Messiah would come. Did Judah deserve that? No, not at all. Well, why did God give him that blessing? Because God's a God of amazing grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. We, we see God's amazing grace displayed in Jacob's family. This family filled with dysfunction, favoritism, sibling rivalry, jealousy, hatred, selling a brother into slavery. And yet God takes this family preserves them in Egypt, saves them. Why? Because he had promised their grandfather Abraham that through his ancestors, he would bless the whole world. They didn't deserve it, but God blessed them. Why? Because he's a God of amazing grace. We we look, look at Tamar's life and we see God's amazing grace displayed in Tamar. How so? In Tamar, we see God's blessing of the Gentile people. Here is this pagan Canaanite woman. She's not a a Jew. She's not an Israelite. She's a pagan Canaanite woman, but she would become one of the ancestors of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women listed. One of them is Tamar, this Gentile woman, this pagan Canaanite woman. This woman who was abused and exploited by her Jewish family. And yet God chose her to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Why? Because he's a God of amazing grace. And friends, I'll tell you something. We can see God's amazing grace displayed in our lives too. 
if we'll simply turn to him in faith. Just like none of these people in Genesis 38 deserved God's grace, so too do all of us fall short of the glory of God. So too have all of us turned away in rebellion and depravity and wickedness against the Lord. But God in his amazing grace has made a way for us to be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite references in the Bible is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There the Apostle Paul tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ, friends, we can obtain access into this grace in which we stand. You know, friends, there's two places you can stand in this world. You can either stand in grace or you can stand in the grave. Grace or the grave. Those are the two options. You either stand in the grace of Jesus Christ and experience life and life to the full through the forgiveness of sin that comes with him, through the reconciliation with God that comes through him. You experience the reality of standing in God's grace because of what Jesus did for us, dying on the cross for our sins, or you're standing in the grave. You're a dead man walking. That's all. You live, you die, and then it's over. You're either in the grave or you're standing in grace. And through Jesus Christ, friends, we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins, to be justified, to be made right with God so that we no longer have to stand in the grave. We can stand in grace and we can look forward with hope, the hope of the glory of God, the idea that one day we will be united with our Savior in heaven for all of eternity. It's either the grave or grace, friends. Where are you standing today? See, we have an obligation not only to embrace the grace of Christ in our own lives, but to share the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ with others. As Genesis 38 shows us so clearly, this world apart from God is in dire straits. We need a Savior, and we cannot save ourselves. And as we're going to see unfolding in the story of Joseph, God is going to save his people. He's going to protect and preserve his people. They're going to experience his salvation as they're sent down to Egypt, as they're reunited with their brother Joseph, as God delivers his people. And you know something? All of this is simply a picture of what God wants to do in each of our hearts. Delivering us from our depravity rescuing us from our rebellion against him, protecting us, preserving us, restoring us through a right relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the gift of grace that God offers each and every one of us. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings to worship, because many of us in this room have experienced God's amazing grace. It's where we stand. We stand in that grace. And we have a world outside these walls today that needs to know the hope of the glory of God. That's our calling. That's our mission, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that's spiraling out of control and depravity. Let's do that, church. See, through God's amazing grace, there's hope of new life for sinners. There's forgiveness for rebels, and there's healing for the broken and the abused. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story that you've given us here in Genesis 38, the story of Judah and his family, a story which highlights so clearly our human sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And Lord, we thank you that you've provided that Savior for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would all stand in the grace that you give us through our justification by faith in your Son, and that we would live for the hope of the glory of God as we go out this week, as we interact with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, that, that we would shine forth the hope that we have as we stand in the grace that's found in Jesus and that we would make known to all around us, Lord, that there's a God who provides a way. There's an answer to the hopelessness and the, and the sin and rebellion that we see in our culture today. There's an answer, excuse me, and his name is Jesus. Lord, help us to live with that hope and model that hope and share that hope with the world that so desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm going to invite you to stand as we close this morning. I want to thank you for coming out, and I look forward to a great summer worshiping together. Uh, we're going to be here in the gym together for the foreseeable future. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to be. Uh, we have a lot of exciting things happening on the other end of the building, and uh, I'm pretty confident before the summer's over, we're going to be back in our sanctuary. Uh, I mean, it's amazing what, what's going on down in our sanctuary. So I hope you're excited about that. And, uh, but it's going to be a great summer as we worship the Lord together here. I want to leave you with this benediction this morning. Before I do that, let me just say our ushers are going to come in and they're going to dismiss you row by row as we exit here this morning. So we're first going to dismiss our youth center commons area and, uh, and then we're going to come and dismiss you from the front back. So just follow the elders' directions as we go uh, and wait till they acknowledge your row to, uh, to exit the uh, sanctuary here. And then you're going to leave out door number three. So we're going to ask you not to stop and visit along the way, but just make your way out door number three. And uh, if you want to say hi to some of your friends out in the parking lot, feel free to do that. But uh, again, we just ask that you uh, continue to practice the good social distancing measures as we exit on our way out. And now I'm going to leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a blessed week, everybody. I love you guys. So good to be back together. God bless you.